0: Our scripture reading today is in Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 13. In the Pew Bible, that is 1063. So again, Mark 1, verses 1 through 13. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet Behold, I see my messenger before you, your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of the one crying in the wilderness Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached saying, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to, st- to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove, and a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son, with whom, with you, I am well pleased. The spirit immediately drew him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. If you keep your Bibles
1: open to Mark chapter one, we're starting a new series, a new study through the Gospel of Mark. And it'll likely take us around a year to get through Mark's Gospel. And I'm excited this morning to begin. If if you remember last week you were given a handout, if you had an opportunity to look at that, if you didn't, there's some more on these front two pews. You can take one home with you if you'd like. But to help us to introduce the book and to get started studying through the book of Mark today. Um, That that handout, that guide gives us some information that's useful. And uh, so our hope this morning is that you don't just wait till Sunday uh, to hear a little bit about the book of Mark, but that you'll take this year and read through Mark's gospel several times, uh, get you a a good commentary or a study Bible and and, and read through on your own during the week and allow God to use Mark's gospel to teach you and to instruct you. Um, That handout, though, gives us some information before we get into the text that will help us. The author there is, uh, is unnamed. It's likely John Mark. Uh, the early church was unanimous in calling John Mark the author. Uh, Mark is the son of Mary. Uh, we see in Acts 12 that the early church met in Mary's home. It was also possibly the site of the Last Supper in Mark chapter 14. We know that Mark was the secretary. Uh, he was the translator for Peter. Uh, Papias, a second cent- century bishop, Uh, who also knew John the Apostle, wrote of Mark and said, uh, Mark wrote accurately all that Peter remembered. Which makes sense when you read Mark's Gospel, you see that Mark mentions Peter more than any of the other Gospels, relatively speaking, as far as how short it is. We also see that as you go through the book of Mark, that nothing happens in Mark that Peter's not a part of or not present for. And so what we have in Mark's Gospel is an eyewitness account of Peter, who was one of the twelve, but more than that, he was one of the inner circle that Jesus intentionally poured his life into. And so Mark's gospel is helpful for us. A few features that you should know about the book. It's the shortest of the four gospels by a pretty good margin. Um, It's written from Rome, likely when Peter was in Rome, to a Gentile audience, so not to a Jewish audience. Uh, It's fast-paced. You see the word immediately. It was used in our text this morning. It'll be used 41 times throughout the rest of the narrative. And that word immediately is indicating to us that Mark is fast-paced and he's moving us toward a particular event, Jesus' life, our death and resurrection. Um, It's moving us toward Jesus' passion. Mark wants us to get there. He's focusing us uh, on on Jesus' work, what Jesus does, his miracles, his his ministry, and not so much on his teaching. That's one of the things that's missing in Mark's gospel is that he doesn't spend a lot of time uh, talking through, giving us what Jesus specifically taught. You see an outline there for the book of Mark. This will be helpful. This morning we're covering number one on that outline. Um, We're we're covering an introduction where we see who Jesus is. We're given his identity. We see that in his baptism and in his temptation. We see that in the words of the Father. And so we'll get into that a little bit more. But then as we walk through the book, we see um, uh, four or five depending on which when you got the sheet, the sheet uh, that you got last week had five. Studying it some more this week, I went back and critiqued. I said, "No, nah, I think we're going to see four scenes." And so um, there's a there's a 2.0 version of that outline. If you get it on the pew this morning, that will actually have four. Um, the work in ministry around Galilee. We see Jesus's ministry in Galilee, chapters one through chapter eight. Then the next section we see is his, his trip to, his making his way to Jerusalem in chapters 8 through 10. And then you see his ministry and work in Jerusalem in chapters 11 through 16, which takes us through the end of the book. And ultimately, that pinnacle, that climax, is his death and his resurrection, his passion. Some themes in Mark we see the identity of Jesus. We'll see that this morning. That's our point this morning. We'll have four points, but the main idea, what Mark wants you to see in this first chapter, in these first 13 verses, is who Jesus is. He's writing so that you will know who Jesus is. We'll see that throughout the rest of the book as well. You also see another theme that we'll mention this morning in Mark is a new exodus. That Just like we wrapped up the book of Deuteronomy, we'll see another exodus that's happening, and this time it's one that will not fail. And so we'll talk about a, little, a little bit more about that in a moment as well. And then finally, it's this idea of discipleship. Chapters 8 through 10, Jesus, we see this pattern develop where he's teaching his disciples about uh, discipleship. Jesus predicts his, his death, his resurrection. The disciples go and, and screw up and mess up. They, they indicate that they didn't get it. They didn't understand what he was teaching them. And so then he, he begins to flesh out and teach them about the cost of discipleship. And so we see these themes. Before we jump into the text, though, this morning, uh, don't think... This morning, that Mark is just a dispassionate biographer, that he's sitting down with Peter and he's recording the details of the life of a man named Jesus from Nazareth. And some unconcerned, he's just a chronicler of of history. No, Jesus is presented here, and Mark is giving us this gospel so that you will know who Jesus is, namely the Son of God, and why Jesus came, namely to die on the cross as the suffering servant, to give his life as a ransom for many. And so we're given this account in Mark's gospel so that we see just how tragic it is when someone is confronted with the truth of the gospel and yet they do not believe. They're confronted with who Jesus is and they refuse to submit to his lordship. Mark's account of Christ calls you this morning, friend, to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God who gave his life as the only way we can have salvation. And so this morning, as you've heard the text read, Again, four points this morning we see Mark emphasizing to us, in this introduction to his gospel, who Jesus is. Number one, we see the Father's promise. We see it in verses one through three. The Father's promise. So there's some words in these first three verses that are loaded with significant meaning. The first word you see there that we must realize is there for a reason is the word gospel. In the Greek, euangelion. It means good news. And in Mark's gospel, he uses this word seven times. That's significant, because in Matthew's gospel, it's only used four times, and it's used none in Luke and John. And here's what Mark is wanting you to know. This story he's about to tell you about this one Jesus from Nazareth is good news. It's actually the only news that will save. It's the only news that will bring eternal life, the death and resurrection of Christ, which he's going to, again, get us to in a fast-paced movement. It's good news. It's gospel. He's wanting you to know that from the beginning. He's giving you that tip so you lean in and listen to this good news. He also introduces Jesus with some extremely important terms, some descriptions of Jesus that are necessary for us to see this morning. First, he calls him Jesus. This is important for us. Last week, we wrapped up the book of Deuteronomy. And if you remember, we were in the last chapter meeting uh, this transition from Moses' leadership to a man named Joshua. Joshua. Which we told you last week was in uh, the Greek, Yeshua, Yeshua, and it meant Yahweh saves. And so we saw in Moses' death a new covenant mediator, Joshua, one who would come and, 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 and lead Israel to salvation. And Joshua failed. We didn't see that in Deuteronomy, but if you continue in the Old Testament, you see that Joshua, like Moses, dies. And Israel ultimately fails and goes into captivity. So already in the beginning of Mark's gospel, we see a connection to the idea of a new exodus, a new Israel, a new uh, Joshua who will not fail. And in Mark's gospel, he makes that clear that this one Jesus, which was a pretty common name, is a special Jesus, a Jesus that will succeed where Joshua failed, where Yeshua in the Old Testament did not. And Yahweh will truly save through this Jesus. Well, the second term that's used for him is the Christ. In the Old Testament Hebrew, this would have been Messiah. In the New Testament Greek, the idea of an anointed royal figure. Mark wants his readers to know, first sentence into the gospel, that this one is the Christ. He is the one who the Old Testament has described. And that this life of the one uh, from Jesus of Nazareth is unquestionably the Messiah from the Old Testament, the one prophesied about, that would deliver God's people from the bondage of sin. He makes that clear in calling him the Christ. But that doesn't, he doesn't stop there. He gives him another descriptive title, Son of God. And we hear that title this morning and we, we think to ourselves, that's, that's pretty common. We've heard Christ called that before. But for them, this would have been jaw-dropping. For a Jewish audience, this would have been startling. This claim that he was the son of God was a claim of outright divinity. Mark is saying unquestionably that this one Christ, this one Jesus, who he's about to tell you about, has a un- unique relationship with God the Father. That he preexisted everything. That he, was, he, he is eternal and predates everything that we see, every person, everything on this planet because he is the one who made all things. He is indeed God. The sonship of Christ, Christ being the Son of God, is affirmed throughout Mark's gospel and other places. We see in in, in chapter 1, that will be in this morning, verse 11, the Father himself refers to him as my beloved Son. This is repeated at the transfiguration of Christ. God's affirming his sonship. We see it in chapters 3 and in chapters 5 that even the demons from hell know Christ to be the Son of God, and they confess that truth. And then at the pinnacle of the story, at the pinnacle of this narrative in chapter 15, a Roman soldier at the crucifixion, a Gentile soldier says, truly, this man was the son of God. So what we see is Jesus is the Son of God, and these titles are important. I told you Mark is a fast-paced gospel, and he wastes zero time. Again, the first sentence that we so often start when we start a book, just reading through our, our Bibles yearly, if you do that, I hope you do that. We read this sentence so often, so casually. What Mark is doing here, he doesn't want you to miss it. He begins with these titles for Jesus so that as he gets into the narrative and religious leaders and crowds of people and his followers, even his own disciples, when they fail to see who Jesus is, you will feel the weight of that tragedy. They missed it. The most important truth in the world, they missed that he was Messiah. They don't ultimately miss it, but they miss it all along the way. Mark's writing for us today as well. Not just so that as we read the scriptures, we see guys that are missing it. We see men and women that are missing it. But Mark's gospel is written for us so that as we, as we see culture, as we see our world As we see things even in our our current context where people are missing it, they're missing who Christ is, that we would feel the tragedy and the weight of that because he's revealed himself to us in his word. He is God's son. He is the Christ. He is Jesus. Yahweh saves. That's who Mark wants to know he's talking about. And so kids, listen up to me this morning. I know Deuteronomy was tough for us. A lot of us had had a hard time understanding some of those difficult things that were said in Deuteronomy. I had a hard time dealing with it as well. But here's what I want you to know, kids, in the room this morning. If you're zoned out, listen to me. Mark is writing so that you would know who Jesus is. That's what we're going to talk about in here in the next year. Mark wants you to know who Jesus is so that you'll believe in Jesus for salvation. Does that make sense? I hope it does. Let's continue. Just as uh, we, 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 we thought, just when we thought all of Mark's cards are on the table, Mark's told us who Jesus is. He's given us these profound descriptions, these three ways of seeing who Christ is. He's Jesus. He's the Christ. He's the Son of God. We think that his cards are on the table, but Mark has an ace in the hole. All right? I looked up dictionary.com what that means because I, you know, I use it all the time and wasn't sure actually what the term meant, ace in the hole. This is what it means. A piece of information kept secret until it becomes necessary to use it, and it will undoubtedly ensure victory kind of news did Mark share that would ensure victory? What kind of news did Mark have? What what kind of victory was this? Well, the kind of victory that it ensured was such that he couldn't keep it secret. In fact, he drops it on you in the second verse of his gospel, the second sentence of his gospel. Mark raises the stakes all the way through the roof and he makes this ultimate claim in verse two. As it was written in the prophets, Verse 2, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. Verse 3, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. So what's Mark's ace in the hole? What's his piece of information that would ensure ultimate victory? It's this, by quoting the prophet Isaiah and the prophet Malachi, Mark is asserting that John the Baptist, who we're about to read about, who you've heard read about this morning, is the fulfillment of the voice calling out in the wilderness, out in the desert. And so Mark equates John with the one predicted hundred years earlier that would be preparing the way for the Lord. By clear inference, he's equating Jesus then with the Lord himself, with God Almighty, the one who John was preparing the way for. What Mark is saying as clearly as possible with an audacious claim from Old Testament prophecy is that the Lord God, the long-awaited divine king who would rescue his people and Jesus that he's about to tell you a story about, are one and the same person. And he's using the Old Testament to make it as clear as possible that this one Jesus, the one we're about to describe, is the Lord God. For Mark then, Christianity is not a new thing. It's simply the fulfillment of all the biblical prophecies, the prophets, the longings and visions of the Old Testament. He is the one who will come to rule and renew the entire universe and make all things well by the blood of his own self. So here, three verses into Mark's gospel, we see that God has kept his promise and that where Moses failed, where Joshua in the Old Testament failed, he sends his own son who cannot fail. And the point for Mark is that he's writing this so that we would believe in this one, the Christ, Jesus, the son of God, who the prophets foretold as he's the only way of salvation. Number two, we see not only the father's promise, we see the forerunner's proclamation. Look at verses four through eight. You ever heard the saying, uh, we use it all the time, oh, to be a fly on the wall? Oh, if I could have just been a fly on the wall for that conversation or have, have witnessed that scene, the idea is a, of, of an invisible guest just observing what's happening in history. Maybe you've asked before, uh, been asked before, if, I could, if you could just go back to one place in time or one, one time in history, or if you could just have one conversation with someone that's passed on, who would it be? Those are interesting conversations to have. Maybe your answer would be Jesus. It's a great, great answer. Maybe your answer would be someone that's, that's passed away, a family member or a loved one, just to go back and have a conversation with them and sit down with them and talk with them one more time. Being a church history nerd, I have a lot of scenarios like that where I'm reading something in church history and I'm thinking, man, if I could have just, if I could just went back and witnessed that event or that occasion, that would have been incredible to see. I would have loved to have been there. Maybe uh, John Knox, as he stands firm before the evil Queen Mary, defies her order. Maybe Hugh Latimer. Maybe you've never heard of Hugh Latimer, but uh, he in Hampton Court preached before King Henry VIII, and it offended King Henry. The word of the Lord that, that, that Hugh Latimer preached offended the king, and so the next Sunday, the king ordered Hugh to preach again, and this time to make an apology in the sermon toward the king. And so what did Hugh do? Well, let me quote you. Hugh, in his sermon, talks about himself in the third person, and he says this, Hugh Latimer, dost thou know before whom thou art to speak today? To the high, mighty monarch, the king's most excellent majesty, who can take away thy life if thou offendest? Therefore, take heed, thou dost, dost not speak a word that may displease. But consider well, Hugh, dost thou not know from whence thou comest Upon whose all present, upon whose message thou art sent, even the great and mighty God, who is all present and who beholdeth all thy ways, who is able to cast thy soul into hell. Therefore, take care that thou dost deliver thy message faithfully. And then Hugh Latimer continued to give the same sermon he had given the week before, but he preached it with more vigor, more energy, and more passion. He ultimately died a martyr's death by being burned at the stake. But what an incredible scene to have been a fly on the wall for, to watch Hugh Latimer stand in front of King Henry and preach the word of God and not concerned if it offended. Or maybe John, maybe the apostle John, standing before the Sanhedrin when he said, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge for we cannot but speak what we have heard and seen. Acts chapter 4. What a day in the life of the church. To have been a part of that day. To have been a fly on the wall. There's one guy in church history that I'd really love to go back and hear preach. To be a fly on the, I guess the tree, because there wasn't a wall where he was preaching. And that's, the, that's John the Baptist. A couple reasons. Jesus says in Luke chapter 7 that among those born of women, none is greater than John. That's a pretty great compliment coming from the Son of God. But also, he was the herald. He was the primary witness to the Lord Jesus Christ. He was the one that the prophet said would be coming to prepare the way of the Lord. Oh, the several things we see in Mark's account here, Mark's gospel of John, that we notice, and again, notice this, that John is the subject of these few verses in the beginning of Mark, but though he's the subject, Christ is still the focus. John is there to amplify, to highlight the Messiah, Christ, the anointed one. And so we see that in several ways. We see that in his message. Look at verse 4. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance. The idea here of baptism was completely radical. The only thing even close to it in this day was that Gentiles, when they were to be brought into the Jewish faith, they were baptized into the Jewish faith. And the, uh, the Jewish uh, teaching would said that that would have been necessary for the, the washing of past sins. But this idea, what John was doing, had never been done. Jews were now being baptized. This was unheard of. And so what's the point? John's baptism was focused on repentance. Verse 4. Even the location of the baptism emphasized this truth. Remember, we just finished the book of Deuteronomy. Where was Israel when they turned to the Lord? Where did the Lord bring them to turn them back to himself? To the wilderness. And so John is preaching to the Jews to repent of their sins. There's more to his message. Look at verse 7. And he preached saying, After me comes one who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but... He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. He told them that what he was doing was drenching them in water, which was only external, but that there was one coming who would drench them in the Holy Spirit, which is internal. You see how John is is really in the narrative to point to Jesus. His message emphasizes that, that they are to repent, that Jesus is coming. There's one who's coming who will bring with him this gift of the Holy Spirit, who will infill them and, and indwell them. So his message, look at his character, his character... Points to who Jesus is. We skip verse 6, so go back up to verse 6. We see that his message explicitly magnifies Jesus, but his character, his dress, and his diet implicitly magnify Jesus. Look at verse 6. John was clothed with camel's hair, and he wore a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and honey. Kids in the room this morning, how would you like that? If mom decided to take you school shopping this week and you get to the store and she says, you know, nothing's really working out here, let's just go and buy you some camel hair for the first day of school. Or she packed your lunch for the first day of school and you open it up at lunchtime, you're excited because lunchtime's our favorite time during school, write that in recess, and you open up the lunchbox and locusts are all you find there. John is not making a fashion statement here and he's certainly not... Uh, trying to find a a cooking channel on Home and Garden TV. No, his attire is what poor people would have worn. But more than that, it's it's important to notice that it's what one specific poor man wore back in the Old Testament. John is intentionally dressing himself in the exact same outfit as the prophet Elijah, who called his people to national repentance. Elijah and John here are protesting the godlessness, the self-serving materialism of their day is further evidenced by their coming out to the wilderness. Again, Israel had been brought to repentance before in the wilderness. And again, again, the idea of a second exodus, that the people of Israel are being called now to return to the wilderness where they're being told to repent of sins by a man who's dressed like the prophet Elijah. So through his diet, through his appearance, though they were not beautiful, by a long stretch of the imagination, his life of repentance, his uncompromising devotion to God certainly was beautiful. And we see the humility of his character emphasized further in John's gospel. Jesus' ministry began to grow and eclipse John's ministry. And John said in John chapter 3, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. I'm not the Christ. John saw himself as a joyous friend of the bridegroom. The one who is coming to save his people from their sins. And so his famous saying that you've all heard, you've probably said it or maybe even have it on your social media channels. John chapter 3, he must increase but I must decrease. John's character was one that would lift high the name of Christ and make much of who Jesus is. And so to be clear, the appearance of this man is not only strange to us today. This camel hair, this leather belt, this eating locusts and honey, it was strange in their day as well. That's why Mark points it out. And we see everything about him is pointing to who Jesus is, his humble appearance, camel hair, his humble uh, home, the desert, his humble diet, locusts and honey, his humble message. There's one coming who's greater than I, who's mightier than I, and I don't even deserve to untie his shoes. So we see the promise of the Father fulfilled, It teaches us who Jesus is. We see the forerunner's proclamation given, it teaches us who Jesus is. Thirdly, see the Son's affirmation. Look at verses 9 through 11. And in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Why was Jesus baptized? It's a great question. John, in fact, asked the question himself in Matthew's gospel. Make this clear this morning, friends. Listen to me closely. Jesus had no sins to repent of. Jesus had no sins to confess. He was the son of God. He was without sin. He was God himself. And so Mark is making much of this idea of a second exodus. He's bringing us to see again this new exodus. Remember, we've just finished Deuteronomy. And in Deuteronomy, we see Moses failed. He died. He stopped short of bringing his people to the promised land. He couldn't go there because of his own sin. We see that Joshua in the Old Testament also fails. But where they both failed, where the people of Israel failed, Christ succeeded. And so Christ goes into the wilderness to identify with his people in their suffering. He goes to the the wilderness for this baptism, not for his sake, but for ours. His baptism was uh, associating himself with sinners and placing himself among the guilty. Not for his salvation, but for ours. Not for his guilt, but for ours. Not for his fear of the wrath to come, but to save us from the wrath to come. That's why he went out to the wilderness. His baptism meant the cross. Him identifying with us as guilty men to take on our sins. And so when we see in this text, we deserve wilderness. We're the ones that should be in the wilderness. We're the ones that should be repenting of sins. Christ goes there because we couldn't come out of the wilderness. This is the testimony of Scripture. That's the hope of the gospel today. There's nothing you can do in and of yourself to come out of the wilderness. So Jesus goes into the wilderness for you. The Bible describes us as those that were dead in our sins. What do dead people do? That's a rhetorical question. The answer is nothing. Dead people do nothing. And so Jesus goes into the wilderness this morning, friends. Hear and believe the gospel that Jesus is the one who went into the wilderness not for his own sin, but to save you from yours to demonstrate that he was God, he truly is God, and he would take the sin of mankind upon himself. So Mark's writing so that you'll believe who Jesus is. Also in this section, see and hear the son's affirmation in verses 10 and 11. It says this, And when he he came out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending upon him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved son, And with you I am well pleased. So when Jesus' baptism took place, what did he see? He saw heaven being torn open. Now I'm not sure what this would have looked like. Again, the fly on the wall thing would have been incredible here to have been able to see this. But Mark is giving us something better than a visual picture of what it looked like. He's pointing us to something greater. If you go to Isaiah chapter 64, you see the prophet Isaiah says in verse 1 and 2, If only you would tear open the heavens... And come down so that the mountains would quake at your presence just as fire kindles brushwood and fire burns or boils water to make your name known to your enemies so that the nations will tremble at your presence. What we see here in Mark's gospel when he says that the heavens are being torn over, he's pointing us back to Isaiah and he's telling us, God is about to do something huge in your presence. He's about to do something amazing. His son, God's son, is here on the scene. And he's about to do something incredible. Just like the prophet Isaiah asked for. But that's not all he saw. What else did Jesus see? He saw the Spirit descending upon him like a dove. For us this morning, the Spirit of God being pictured as a dove is not that unfamiliar We hear that and that just makes sense, spirit dove. But Mark had a very specific reason intention for using this language in the gospel, in the opening to his gospel. What was his reason? He points us in using dove language back to creation, to Genesis 1, where it says the spirit hovered like a dove over the waters. Why is that important? Because we see that in creation, three parties are present. There are three parties involved in creation. God, God's Spirit, and God's Word. And now Mark's demonstrating to us that the same three parties are present and active and working in Jesus' baptism. The Father, who's the voice from heaven. The Son, who is the Word. And the Spirit, like a dove. Mark is doing something, friends, here. He's deliberately pointing us back to creation, to the beginning of history. And just like original creation, the world was a project of the triune God, Mark is showing us that the redemption of the world, like creation, is a project of the triune God. That rescue and renewal of all things is beginning now in Christ, and it's a project of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You see what Mark's doing there. what did he hear? We see Christ saw those two things, but what did he hear? Verse 11, and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, and with you I am well pleased. What a powerful statement. No prophet ever received words like these. You see in the Old Testament, Abraham was a friend of God, Isaiah 41. You see that Moses was a servant of God, Deuteronomy 34, where we were last week. You see that Aaron was a chosen one, Psalm 105. David was a man after God's own heart, 1 Samuel 13. But only Israel, and in connection Israel's king, were called God's sons. And so now in Jesus... We see that Mark is being very specific here in his language. In Jesus, the servant king, Jesus of Nazareth, the Messiah, the son of God, we are seeing that he's now this second Adam, this one that's come to save his people from their sins. He's the better Israel. He's the Israel that will not fail. He's the better Moses, the one that will not fail. He's the perfect king who will succeed where all these others have failed. And God himself affirms, this is my beloved son. And in the transfiguration account, he follows it up by, you would do well to listen to him. Watch how this plays out. If Jesus is the son, which God himself just affirmed, then Jesus must die for the sins of many, which is what was said would happen to the son. Does that make sense? He just said he's the son. We know from the Old Testament, he said that this son would suffer on behalf of the sins of many. So the question we're left with at the end of this baptism is, will Jesus accept this mission? That's the lingering question in verse 11. And just as Satan would do, you see this word immediately. Again, Mark's fast-paced. He's moving us forward. Immediately, Satan came to tempt him and tried to get Christ to renounce his mission. Which leads us to our fourth point, our final point today. The Savior's victory. So we see who Christ is in the Father's promise being fulfilled. We see who Christ is in the forerunner's proclamation We see who Christ is in the Son's affirmation, and then finally we see who the Savior is, who Christ is in the Savior's victory. Look at verse 12. And immediately, or the Spirit immediately, depending on your translation, drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. So one would expect a time of joy, Time of celebration, festivities, excitement, following this incredible affirmation of Jesus as the Son of God, following this baptism of Jesus, the one who would come to rescue his people from their sins, but that's not what we see. There was no party, there was no public reception, no celebration. Instead, the Spirit of God descended upon Jesus and drove him into the wilderness for a time of testing. This idea of, of, of language of drove him out, literally in the Greek, uh, cast him out. You'll see Mark use this word in future uh, texts uh, for the way that Jesus would cast out demons. And here the Spirit is casting Christ out into the wilderness. Hear this this morning, friends, this morning that when, when we see Christ being driven out to the wilderness, we should be aware that moments of great victory and success in our lives will often be followed by trials and testing. That commissioning by God, when God gives you a mission, a ministry that he's called you to, and you're confident in it, and you surrender to that mission, you surrender to that commission that God has given you, you can bet that trials and testing will follow. So this morning, friends, take heart in this. That if you know for certain God saved you and he's given you a heart for some type of ministry, some type of mission, you find yourself at a place in life right now where it seems like things are just going great, You're experiencing success in your business or in your job, and everything seems like it's okay. God's speaking clearly to you, and you're walking and communing with Him faithfully. Know this, friends, that trials and testing will come. That's why we must, must find our satisfaction in Him. We can't let the circumstances, the success, whatever it is that, that seems good right now be what dictates our joy. Our communion with Christ must be our joy, must be our satisfaction because trials and testing are coming we see see this in Christ's life, we can expect it in our own as well. And so we're left with this question. Will the Son of God, God's Messiah, the one who came to save his people from their sins, will he remain faithful? The Spirit is driving him into the wilderness for testing, and will he remain faithful? Feel the weight of this, friends. As you read this text, don't let your familiarity with the narrative blind you to the weight that Mark wants you to feel. For 40 days, Satan is tempting him. Forty days. He's alone in the wilderness and Satan is tempting him. Other gospels give us more details. Mark leaves out those details. But what you find is that Satan appeals to his satisfaction. He offers him food. Satan appeals to his ego. He offers him uh, or questions his ability. Satan appeals to his desire for possessions. He offers him material gain. And what we ultimately see is that Satan would love to see Christ fail. And that from this time when Satan goes into the wilderness or when Jesus goes in the wilderness and is tempted by Satan, this battle rages on all the way up to the cross of Calvary. And if Jesus fails, friend, hear me closely. If Jesus fails, then we are lost. Humanity is lost. All hope is gone. The 40 days remind us of 40 years that Israel spent in the wilderness. They ultimately failed at being God's son. The 40 days remind us of the, of the 40 days that Moses spent on Mount Sinai, and Moses ultimately failed. Will the new Israel succeed? Will the new Moses succeed? Not only was it 40 days, Mark highlights another difficulty. He was alone. He was facing this temptation all alone in solitude. It was a place of danger. There were no communities here. It was not just some vacation spot that Jesus went to out in the wilderness and set up camp for a little while and had him a good old time around the campfire. The conditions were grueling. Jesus was undoubtedly hungry and weak and tired. And to give in to grumbling and complaining would have been absolutely expected. It would have been easy for him to give in and complain and grumble. After all, that's what Israel does when Israel's in the wilderness, right? If you remember back to The Old Testament, will the new Israel give in and complain and grumble? And then verse 13, it's complicated further because he was with wild animals. The historian Tacitus tells us that after this time, Christians were covered in the hides, the furs of wild animals and beasts, and their bodies were literally torn into pieces by dogs as a way of persecution. So people in this day would have associated wild animals here with adversity, with persecution. And so this detail in Mark's gospel is not just out there, so that it's, it's there for a reason. When the, the people in this day would have heard that he was out there with these wild animals, it would have added a level of, of, of shock and of horror to this story, that Christ would have been alone out there with these beasts by himself. And so all of these details, this solitude, the, the location, the conditions, the animals are showing us that Jesus goes to do battle with Satan on Satan's home turf. That he's going into enemy territory and he's invading it by the power of God. And so, friend, be encouraged this morning that Jesus knows exactly what you're going through. There is no circumstance on the face of this planet that Christ cannot relate to. And regardless of how dark your days may seem right now, Christ knows what you're going through. He can identify with you. Even more, it says this, that the angels were ministering to him. Psalm 34 and Hebrews chapter 1 tell us that those angels may be sent to serve you as well. So friends, take confidence in this. Whether you're at a time of great success and doing well and everything seems to be going okay, rest assured that trials and testing can be coming right around the corner. But then the opposite of that is true as well. If you're going through a time that's dark and trials are facing you every day and the testing seems so much that it's about to crush you, then notice that Christ, he's been there. And that unlike Christ bearing this alone, you have the Spirit of God inside of you, leading you, and you're never alone or forsaken as his child. And here's where the start of Mark's gospel leaves us with great hope, and we're wrapping up think about this. What was Satan's goal in the wilderness? What was Satan trying to do here? He was trying to get Jesus to not suffer. That should strike us as odd, right? That the enemy of Jesus, the one who would be opposed to Jesus, would actually be trying to tempt him and get him to avoid suffering. That usually is not what happens from an enemy, Why would that be the case? Why would Satan, the enemy of Christ, be trying to get him to avoid suffering? And it's for this, friends. Listen closely as we wrap up. Ultimately, Christ's suffering, ultimately Christ's death and resurrection would be Satan's doom and destruction. Christ's suffering would be the linchpin in the coffin for Satan. And he knows that at this moment, this temptation in the wilderness is more than just food or power or material possession. This temptation in the wilderness is a war raging in the wilderness over the souls of mankind, over your soul and mine. If he can keep Jesus from from going through with his mission, if he can keep Jesus from the cross, if he can keep Jesus from suffering, that's his goal. Satan thinks as as he starts this temptation with Jesus in the wilderness, and it's a temptation, it's a war, it's a battle that will rage again all the way up to the hill of Calvary to a Roman cross. And Satan thinks as that cross is lifted high and Jesus is suffering on the cross and will die, Satan's thinking, I've won. I've won the battle. I've won. But what Satan doesn't realize is that Sunday's coming, friends, and the king does not remain dead. The king will rise again, and victory is certainly won, friends. And so Christ in the wilderness is not just about food and hunger and temptation friends the wilderness is the beginning of a battle over the souls of men where it's already been conquered we see that from the beginning Christ has won and so take confidence in this friends this morning that when Jesus rises from the dead Satan's doom is sealed and victory is won and we see that as we go all the way back to the wilderness temptation that it's a battle that Jesus has already conquered and won and that's what Mark's trying to get us to see, and he's trying to get us there in a hurry. He's getting us to the cross. And so the, the temptation that Satan brings to Jesus in these, these first few verses, in the first chapter, we see it rage on, but we see Jesus ultimately victors, victorious in the cross. So see the victory of the Savior and know who Christ is. As Jesse comes to lead us this morning in response, there's a couple way to ways to this, respond to this text this morning, friends. If you know Christ and you've placed your faith and trust in Him, if you have believed that He is the Son of God and you've repented of your sins, you are His child this morning. And you should this morning, as we stand and sing together, you should worship Him for saving you. He is who He said. He has conquered death, hell, and the grave. So worship Him this morning and trust that He's with you. Whether it's trials or whether it's success, He's with you. But the other side of that, friends, is this morning, if you're here with us this morning and you're not a believer in Jesus Christ. You've not surrendered your life to him and repented of your sins. This morning, Mark's gospel is written so that you will know and you will believe. Trust him this morning. Repent of your sins and follow Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning that in Mark's gospel, we see the truth of who you are. Jesus, we see that you came to this earth. You are the Christ you are the Son of God, and you have given your life as a ransom for many. And I pray that every man, woman, boy, and girl here this morning would believe that truth and would follow you, surrender their lives to you, and confess their sins. Father, we thank you that you conquered in the wilderness. We thank you that you conquered at Calvary and that you rose from the dead. And now we have hope of life and eternity with you. Help us to worship you this morning as your body, as Poplar Spring Baptist Church, as we respond to this truth. It's in the name of Jesus, our all-conquering king, that we pray. Amen. Let's stand and respond to him in worship.